Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Robert McFarlane, whose latest book is Underland, A Deep Time Journey. He's the author of six other books, including Mountains of the Mind, The Wild Places, the Old Ways, mm-hmm. which looks quite fascinating, Landmarks, The Lost Words. There's a couple of uh, documentaries in there as well. From what I can gather, before we get into this, you started out kind of as a mountain climber, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I still am. Climb mountains for the best part of 40 years. And first I climbed in my dad's rucksack. So yeah, they draw me. They draw me up. Why do we go high? Uh, that's That was the first question I ever wanted to answer when I became, became self-conscious about it. So I climbed in the Himalayas. I climbed in Scotland a lot, uh, in the Alps. I was pretty bad, but very passionate. What was your first mountain? First mountain was in the Cairngorms, northeast Scotland. These are old, like Devonian mountains, very, very low by your standards, about 4,000 feet, but pretty wild Arctic conditions. Is that like not far from Sky or...? Uh, it's North Scotland, Highlands, so Sky's on the west coast, these are on the east coast, and the mountains are savage. Now, the Hebrides, on this particular book, you could have gone there but didn't because it sounds as if a lot of what's going on, which we'll get to Mm -hmm. in places like Norway and Greenland, are also you can kind of see climate change up in the Hebrides. Is that right? That is right. The Outer Hebrides, we also call the Western Isles. That's like Lewis and Harris and um, these, this fabulous archipelago, which I've written a lot about. This is the first book I've ever written that doesn't have Scotland in it. But Scottish you know, background, Scottish family, um, those you can hear, not the Scottish accent, my enduring regret. But, um, but yes, the Hebrides, like everywhere, is you know, climate change, climate breakdown is happening there, definitely. The subtext of Underland, I mean, the, the story itself is you explore, you've explored mountains, so now you're going in the other direction. Yep. But the subtext throughout the book is climate change. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, there's, a, there's a question that Jonas Salk asks uh, in the 1970s, I think, that resonates through the book. I keep getting drawn back to it. Are we being good ancestors? I think it's a brilliant question. You describe the decision to bury radioactive waste and to put up a big sign, basically, that will last millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years to say to, you know, the intelligent cockroaches or whatever they are, right, <laughs> don't go here. Yeah. And as someone points out, you might point it out, the moment you say don't go here is where they're going to dig. Pretty much. Uh, Tutankhamun's tomb, f- f- full of warnings, full of obstructions to people who would try to get to it. But, you know, Howard Carter did. Prince Charming hacks his way through the thorns that encircle Sleeping Beauty's castle. Indiana Jones, full of, full of you know, don't, don't go there, Indy. <laughs> so I think, yeah, it is often an enticement, right? Here, here is something too harmful. Don't go near it. So, of course, we go near it. But, yeah, we're a burying species. We bury our dead. Uh, we have been doing so for um, since before we were anatomically modern human beings, and we bury our, our waste. 
what prompted you, you sort of talk about it in the introduction, but I'll ask you separately. Okay, so you finished your other books mm. and you've done mountains. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds as if you kind of roam around and suddenly an, an idea comes. So in this particular case, were you looking for an idea for a book? All my books take a long time. This one took the best part of seven or eight years. It, something did start it, and it was in 2010. And that year, I don't know if you remember this uh, sort of trifecta, there was the Deepwater Horizon blowout. There was the Icelandic volcano, Eyjafjallajökull, that erupted. And there was the Chilean, the 33 Chilean miners were trapped after the, the, the collapse of the Sao Paulo golden copper mine under the Atacama Desert. And that those all happened within a few months of each other. All the miners got back to the surface safely, but it was like they'd come back from space. It was like an Apollo mission kind of coming back. So these things, these were all underland stories. And and then the, I wrote the book, and the, the, the month I finished it, this time last year, 12 young Thai footballers went in under the mountain uh, with their soccer coach, and, and the world was gripped again. Another underland story. They also all surfaced safely, thank goodness. So when you saw those three, you thought, well, I've explored above, why not below? It was kind of that. It, it wasn't as neat as that. It was It was that the, under, the underworld, I suddenly thought, God, the underworld feels is safe when it's safely below us. And as soon as it comes up, as soon as it surfaces, uh, exploding volcano, collapsing mine, and, and a blowout, oil blowout, all our systems go to pot. The underland is a place we've gone to take things, to store things, and to keep things, um, and to dispose of things. But but we rely on it not surfacing. So I became very interested by that. And that indeed did get overtaken by, by climate change and, and all the ways in which that is bringing what's buried up. Is the book kind of chronological to your journey? Pretty much, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. so you started by just visiting local mines in Cornwall. Well, actually, in the northeast of England. So uh, I come, I live in the southeast, but there's this, um, a Bulby potash mine is this um, great, sort of fertilizer mine that, that sends its labyrinth out under the North Sea. And also nested down in the in the mining tunnels there is, is a dark matter research laboratory. And that's different from the halite mines that you look at too, uh, which, well, are, which are closer to Cornwall. Uh, so um, I think maybe you're thinking of the Mendip. So I, uh, yeah. there's a caving yeah, in the southwest, which is not actually that close to Cornwall, um, but I, I head underground into natural cave systems. And they are, yeah, they're incredible. They're in limestone and they're very vibrant places. I guess what struck me in that section and even more in the section about the catacombs, yeah. which is that when we think of caves, we're thinking, oh, wow, cool. There are stalactites and stalagmites and all of that. But man has done a lot of caving and creating caves because of all of the mining. Totally. We are such a mining species. We're such a burrowing species as well as a bur we've drilled 50 million kilometers of oil borehole alone and we yeah you look at a termite warren we're termites we we we're, we're ants we're rabbits we burrow in search of shelter and resource and suddenly the underworld became this not just this mythic space but yeah this huge hollow space i mean i grew up in mining country in nottingham my dad was a physician who treated miners with black lung silicosis so i was always walking around above stories of place. I, I had a strong sense of growing up on in hollow country. Did you ever go into the mines? Yeah, we did. We, you know, we went in on school trips, and that was part of the education. But this was the time when Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, was busy busting the unions and closing the mines. So um, 
more often, uh, you know, my experience was 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 meeting or talking with miners as a young boy. I had a friend who was a who was a miner, been laid off, and he taught me to play golf. He taught me to gamble. Um, he was a, he was great, and he whistled as well all the time because he was above ground. So, you know, below ground is a place of labor, often sometimes brutal, um, fatal labor, as well as this place of wonderment. When you're in a mine that's been created by mankind as opposed to a natural yeah. cave, is there some kind of difference that you can just feel? Yeah. I mean, most cave, most cave systems are, are made by water, and they're made, most are made by water and limestone. And they're, they're in a way, they're absolutely beautiful. They're like organic. It's like being inside a river. Um, but one made of stone. You're actually you're you're the fish in the flow, and that's that's gorgeous. It is gorgeous, and and it's oddly one of the most tranquil places I've ever been was hundreds of feet below ground in a in a dry chamber in a cave system in Derbyshire. Turn the light off, utter darkness. You can't see your hand a millimeter from your eyes, and and there's nothing. There's no sound, and the world is sheltering you. This is very powerful. As soon as you're in man-made systems, you're you know, all sorts of structures of, of finance and history and atrocity and hope, they're all folded into that in a way that isn't active in a cave system. You talk also about what's under trees, yeah. and the, the fungal uh, communication network between trees, which Richard Powers talks about. He in, does, uh, yeah. I interviewed him uh, in the overstory. And I guess when you tell that story, it's kind of the real-life story that he fictionalizes in the, at that point. In Patricia, yeah, his yeah. character's good. Yeah, Richard's been a wonderful supporter of Underland, and in an odd way, those two books sort of grow into one another at the surface, as it were, at the horizon line. But yeah, this is incredible. It's called, it has this great nickname that I wish I'd given it of the Wood Wide Web, <laughs> and, uh, uh, or the social network of trees. And this, this is this mycorrhizal network, a mutualism between fungi and and trees or plants generally. It's been around for about 450 million years, we think. Has that network ever been displaced by man-made caves, man-made mines? Well, uh, no, but we are displacing it in a sense by, by climate change. Um, that, that, is, that is so the, it's, it, it seems to be very important for resilience. So people are now carrying out huge global mapping projects of the mycorrhizal networks, um, ecto and endomycorrhizal networks, partly in order to see what forests might survive better under greater stress. So again, there's this odd relationship between going underground and actually looking into the future. And that's there in Greek myth, um, the Sibyl of Cumae, the Oracle at Delphi. They, they look to the underworld for prophecy. And I became very interested in that, that going down is not necessarily going back. Clear cutting has that affected this chain of communication? Do you think? Uh, not so much. What what tends to affect it is 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 heavy kind of soil damage because then the the hyphae, the fine fungal filaments that join the trees or plants to other plants, get broken and cut. Well, that part of the book is a little bit different from everything else because mo the rest of it is either caves, crevices, ice. Uh, what prompted you to add that section? Soil. It's just this incredible substance. We're the rhizosphere, this kind of black box, as, sci as soil scientists call it. We, we know so little about it. It's magic stuff. I know nothing about it, but I'm fascinated by people who do. I mean, I just... I must, I obsess about obsessives. That's, that's, I'm a dilettante who loves specialists. And so I hung out with this uh, soil scientist who is truly called Merlin Sheldrake. And um, you're going to hear a lot more about him, I think. Yeah, Merlin conjured open the soil for me. And that was fabulous. 
you you then go back underground to talk about using caves to better understand the universe. Huh. <laughs> yeah. And I was going, well, wait a second. How? <laughs> uh, can you go into that a little bit of what I'm talking about here? Because I kept thinking, no, you need to be, if you're down there, not only do you have the atmosphere above you, but also rocks. Yeah, the rocks. So the rocks are vital to this. So this is a dark, this dark matter research laboratory, and actually there are a bunch of these subterranean laboratories. There's one in Italy in the Grand Sasso. You've got one in a Dakota gold mine. Uh, there's one in Japan. They're they're underground because these are scientists who who want to go to what they call the the quietest place in the universe, and and it's pretty quiet having half a mile of bedrock above you. So they, this is in northeast England. They they, they they commute to scientists commute to work down a, a mine shaft, and then they they their laboratory is set in a halite rock salt band, and there they have something fabulously called the time projection chamber, which feels like it ought to be out of Doctor Who or uh, Back to the Future, and that is trying to detect what they call WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles, and these are the primary particle candidate for dark matter for this missing mass of the universe, which is itself like a void, like a dark space. What is it? We know the universe should weighs more than, than we can tell it does. So about 27% is, is, is supposed to be dark matter, but it won't interact with us experimentally. It's passing through you now, me now. If it exists, tr trillions of wimps piling through us because we're nothing to, to the wimps. So... This, to me, was utterly astonishing, as well as the idea that you go down to see in the dark. You go down there to see what's up there. Exactly. It's <laughs> mind-blowing. It's a, the, the underworld is full of paradox. How did you hear about that? How did I hear about it? I don't know. It's pretty well... I mean, this, this network is pretty well known. I think I was reading... I know. I was reading the poetry of a young female physicist, who uh, astrophysicist, who is also a poet who has now sadly passed away. And she talked about this work as trying to, trying to see fireflies in a meadow in the dark from a great, great distance. And I, that image stuck with me. What's next in the book are the catacombs hmm. of, uh, you go to Paris, but it's, it sounds as if most European cities have the same group of tunnels because they're all made of limestone. <laughs> No, not quite so much. Um, Odessa does. Um, Paris has so Paris has a, an invisible city. I call it underneath itself, particularly the south part of the city. It sits on this beautiful bed of building limestone, Lutetian limestone. So from the medieval period, quarrymen were down there building the city out of its own bedrock. So and the result is there's this shadow city with, of tunnels, um, which are like streets, but they're tunnels, and they have names, and they're mapped um, by unofficially by these these catacomb lovers, the cataphile, and it is insane down there. I mean, this is not the Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame tourist trip. This is you know, it's not legal to get into them, but there are ways of popping manhole covers and so on. Well, there's. Uh, tours, but that's a tiny section. Exactly. It's uh, fantastically popular. I think it's the second most popular tourist destination in Paris after the Eiffel Tower. People are drawn down into the darkness to see where these bodies are stowed. But that's a tiny section of it. And the labyrinth itself is probably about 200 miles, we think, in total length. So these tunnels were there, and 
the city was drowning in cemeteries. Yes. So they opened up all the cemeteries, took all the bones, and stuck them down there. That is right. This happened in the 1780s, later part of the 18th century. And what a scene it must have been. About six million bodies were disinterred from the Parisian cemeteries, clip-clopped through the streets on carts covered with black cloths, men bearing candles walking beside the horse-drawn carts, bells, songs being sung. It's very ceremonial because these were these were bodies. They were they were not rubbish. They they were human remains. And then they were taken to the tomb d'Issoire and then they were they would they were taken down into the catacombs and and stacked and ricked. Because when you've got six million bodies you have you know however many hundred million bones, um, arm bones and femurs. So down there, I mean when we were down there we would, you know, once we got to this Carrefour des Morts, the crossroads of the dead. Um, deep in the unofficial labyrinth, and and there, you know, it's just you, you're wading in bones, and there are skulls sitting on every every ledge. It's uh, it's a city of the dead. You found a guide, but it turns out that there's an entire group of people, a population that either live down there or commute from top <laughs> to down. They're all illegal, and. There's a lot of them, and they create art. Yeah, it's a wild scene down there. It is a subculture. To, you know, it is the underland subculture of Paris. They they call themselves cataphil, catacomb lovers or down lovers, as it were. There are cataflics, catacops who are down there, kind of after them every now and then. How'd you find your guide? Through uh, complex trust-gaining exercises on internet bulletin boards, word of mouth. I call her Lena in the book. She was amazing. She could navigate down there without looking at a map. She had a brilliant sense of direction. And she took me in through this disused railway tunnel. And then you slip through a, a hole that's been cut into the floor of the railway tunnel. And that enters you into the labyrinth. So I just remember you know, raising my hands above my head, slipping through that. And suddenly, bang, I was in the other world for nearly three days. There were places where it was so tight that you had to have your pack on your foot while you crawled with your elbows and that must have been pretty scary it, it was yeah that was the the, the the rock was measuring me up like a coffin there is no doubt there and and that's the bit in the book so many people have written say already saying you know i'm claustrophobic you you, you my heartbeat changed my i had to put the book down i was like this is the one time when i'm happy readers have put the book down because it shows it's working what is the fear in Robert McFarlane's mind between being stuck in a tiny little cave with someone at the other end going, don't worry, you'll pull through and all you see is black, and being on a mountain and the attachment to the rock is beginning to come loose. <laughs> Give me the cave any day. I mean, in terms of, in terms of danger, mountains are much more dangerous. Um, I'm very risk averse. I'm interested in fear, but I'm very, I think you can be frightened when you are not at risk. And that's often, I think underground that happens more because claustrophobia is so gripping and so common. In the mountains, I'm a very, very cautious climber. Yeah, I've lost people to the mountains. I know so many people who've lost people to the mountains. So you're not going to do something, you're not going to climb half dome without uh, no, I mean, for so many reasons. And look, you know, we all saw the photograph of Everest, right? right. You saw that? What did, what did you make of that? You mean that there was a log jam of Yeah, people the log jam and, at 8,800 And they meters. were dying because you can't actually have 
a line like at Disneyland. Exactly. It's insane. It's insane. And it seems to me everything that's wrong with uh, a kind of landscape culture or broader like planetary philosophy. I mean, that, well, those climbers are bringing money into a poor country, Nepal. That's, that's great, the peak permit. I can see why Nepal issued all the peak permits. But yeah, 250 people queuing at 8,800 meters to get a summit selfie, basically. It's like... So I say it's like Disneyland at the top of the world. Exactly. I think they quoted people as saying, oh, yeah, it was worth it. And I'm thinking I'd rather see a picture or go to a a much lower mountain. I don't have to be at Everest. Exactly. You know, if you have to walk past the dead and the dying twice on the way up and then on the way back, you're running. I mean, everything is wrong. There are so many mountains in the world and so many of them are so beautiful. You do not have to be on the highest. Before we move off the caves and into the north, aside from the fact that we know that what they've been mining has changed the planet, does a system of caves, because they're shallow compared to the entire planet, Mm -hmm. does that change the Earth in any way? No, not particularly. I mean, more more striking is is just how little we know about what's down there. Um, You know, you look up, I say early in the book, you look up, you can see literally trillions of miles to stars, distant stars. You look down, you can't see past your own toe. We're learning, we're discovering things about the underworld uh, all the time scientifically. Uh, the, The Wood Wide Web is one example of that. It's only the last 20 years we've begun to crack that from a Western science perspective. Scientists this this January un- uncovered a five or revealed a five year study into what they call the deep biome, life as as deep as they've drilled more or less in the crust. I'm talking twelve miles down. There's life. There's microbial life of vast quantities, like exceeding in biomass the human population by hundreds of times, and it's incredibly diverse, and it's been there for, for millions of years, and we're only just finding it. So the underland keeps secrets really, really well. From Paris, you move down to Slovenia, where you f- you find the Tamavo, which flows underground. And there are waterfalls down there. Oh yeah, this is a this is a I call it the Starless River. Um, it flows underground for about seventy miles. Starts in Slovenia, runs down into Italy, comes out into the Adriatic uh, near Trieste. And yeah, it's not groundwater. This is a full roaring river uh, with rapids, with turns, and and I I descended a about a thousand feet. Uh, vertical near vertical shaft um, in the limestone natural shaft and then abseiled through this huge ceiling of this great cathedral sized dome into into a black dune filled other planet and at the bottom of the dunes on the other side of this huge space chamber were was this river and it was incredible meeting a river that deep down that you know in the darkness it was can people go there, or is it one of those things where it's not really a tourist place at all? That, no, that is not a tourist. It's called the Abyss of Trebiziano. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that'll give you tell you what you need to know. Um, it, no, it's a fairly serious um, commitment to get down there and then and then get back up. So, and and if the river's in spate, then you're in trouble. There's one point where you kind of got taken away a little bit, and you say you're risk averse. That seemed pretty risky, though. We knew it wasn't going to be in Spain. I was with somebody, Sergio. Uh, he was in his seventies. Who'd, who'd been down? You know, he'd been down since the end of the Second World War. He was a pioneer of this space. So, it wasn't risky. I'm lucky. I've been brought up in an outdoor culture, and I feel fairly, fairly fit. 
but as I say, difference between risky and scary. But actually, it was it was it was astonishing. It was like visiting another planet. Um, black black sand, white creatures in the river. I couldn't identify. I wanted to swim in that river. Was the water warm enough? It would have been very cold. But there was a nice something about swimming in a river with no sky. It was it would have been unforgettable. It was it was amazing just to meet it though. Uh, I did do that. Uh, I'm trying to remember where. I think that huh. was in Thailand. Oh yeah, yeah, they have them there. You yeah. swam and you just keep swimming and you know, you see the in the distance, you see the opening of the cave. Wow. But suddenly it's just you and the cave and it is wow. freaky. That must have been really fright. That's a serious thing to do to leave the light behind. Pretty much, yeah. And do you get these nightmares about what's down there in the in the in the dark water? Suddenly, when well, the I've seen gone. enough movies, but there is that moment, yeah, where you're kind of going, now wait a second, what am I doing here? I, I always think caves and and, dark, and underworld spaces have two thresholds, and that's why they become such powerful spaces. The first is where you cross the the, the mouth of the cave from the outer world to the inner world, and the second is where light gives way to dark. Actually, it's the second of those that's more powerful. And I, it's hard not to conclude that that is why so many artists of uh, prehistoric cave art has been made in these spaces. They are ritual. They are powerful. You do feel like you're making a transition. Uh, finally, the last couple of sections of the book, you're in Norway and you're in Greenland. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much where we see the effects of climate change. And that's a little bit later than the earlier sections of the book, 2016, mm. winter of 2016 to 17, I believe. Uh, yeah, partly, yeah, and the summer, the, the, the late summer of, of 2016 as well, which is so warm. And just before it gets really, really cold, though there's a period where you went to an island by yourself to see cave paintings. So that's in Norway, that's on the Lofoten Islands, and these, this cave of the Red Dancers, and I, I, I made an ascent over the, what's called the wall, which sounds like it's straight out of Game of Thrones and more or less could be, but um, is the, the granite wall that, that runs down the Lofoten Islands. And, and the winter just came back and absolutely, it just got me. Um, what I thought was gonna be a, like a three-day solo journey over to this uninhabited far side to see these cave paintings in this deep cave, sea cave next to the Maelstrom, next to a whirlpool. It's clearly a hugely strong landscape site became a genuinely problematic journey. Did you have a satellite phone just in case? Uh, I did not have a sat phone. My father knew that if he didn't hear from me by a certain point, he was to get the big red helicopter out and so on and so forth. <laughs> I did not want, no mountaineer wants to be picked off the mountainside by, by rescue. So um, so I, that did not happen. But there were there were times when it was it was difficult there, yeah. When you got to the caves, the vision of the caves was transcendent. It, it was to the degree that I I cried. Um, I, I, partly, I think that was the stress leaving the body of having got there. These were cave paintings. They called the Red Dancers that were made in the probably about two and a half thousand years ago. And we know that the people who made them had themselves made very difficult journeys to get there without the benefit of uh, of performance fabric, Gore-Tex, and so forth. And they had gone into that dark space, deep in this sea cave, vast sea cave, hundred and fifty foot high opening. And they'd made these red dancing figures on the rock. When I finally saw those figures, which I couldn't find at first, they just didn't appear to me. I was profoundly moved and time seemed to collapse in ways I had never experienced before. And I saw myself as just one of many people drawn into that dark space over thousands of years. The last part of the book, Robert McFarlane, is in Greenland. And 
what scared me in reading it, because it's pretty obvious as you talk that the difference between 2016 and, say, 2013 even Mm -hmm. was pretty striking. Mm -hmm. And here we are in 2019, Mm -hmm. and it must even be more striking. The climate is changing, the earth is changing, and a lot of the glaciers that you saw, maybe even the giant crevice you went down into, they might be gone or they will be gone. Yeah, it was a it was a shocking time to be there. It was late late summer of 2016, 22 degrees C in uh, in Nuuk, the capital of Greenland. Uh, it's 22 degrees C out here today. Um, and and so the the ice cap where so much of the world's ice is is water is locked up as ice was melting fast. Glaciers were flowing faster. This is the front line. Uh, the the fate of ice is is the fate of us. Uh, and I and I had this double sense of ice, which I love. I've always written about ice so much. Of this as this massively powerful substance, it can it can bulldoze a mountain, no problem. Um, but also of us as containing it. You know, our activities are shaping the cryosphere in the in these profoundly consequential ways. So yeah, it was awesome and terrifying in an Anthropocene way. I didn't know about blue ice, and you said you saw something so (laughs) horrifying, black ice. Something came out of the ground and then subsided. What was that? That was a carving event that happened at the face of the Knut Rasmussen Glacier in remote East Greenland, where we were camping for weeks, climbing around there and exploring the ice. And most carving of glaciers that we know is visible it comes from the stuff above the water but of course glaciers have a huge below water line presence as well and sometimes you get a carving from below the water that's what we saw that's the deepest down oldest most compressed ice and this obscene dark ice form huge huge thing big biggest buildings uh, shaped like a pyramid suddenly kind of surfaced and for me that was the moment what i was talking about earlier about the underland rising to the surface now as we change time and change our planet that for me was this beautiful repulsive event when all of that came together sort of as i was reading it i kept thinking you know i feel like i'd stepped somehow into hp lovecraft it, it you are so right i mean lovecraft terrible man extraordinary creator of images it was straight out of lovecraft but it's not it's straight out of our world now is there anything or is we could do or is it too late yeah there's so much we can do. We know what we have to do. I think that's the, that's the change, perhaps even since 2016. We know what we have to do, and we can do it. We are we are capable of nonlinear change. Uh, that's our, our beauty as a species as well as our horror. So basically, Green New Deal uh, is unfolding across the world, cities, states, countries. This is the most hopeful plan we have, and we we can do it. Years ago, 2007, I spoke with a writer named Tim Flannery. <laughs> and, uh, yep. you, yeah, you know oh, the name. Yeah, I know the name, yeah. And he was talking about the rise of carbon sinks and how it would accelerate. And mm-hmm. he was talking about this 12 years ago. Yeah. And no one was listening. I think they were listening, but you're right. The window is closing. And I guess that's uh, our deep time is, sh- is shallowed. It really has. I, I, I've been thinking of it that our, our visions are more hopeful and our future's more more helpless than at any point before. We have better visions, but worse futures. So we need to make our visions our future now. 
And then you talk about also at the end of the book, we are bad ancestors. We are bad ancestors. What we will leave behind in the rock record is pig bones, sheep bones, plastic, an extinction event horizon of, of many species, radionuclides led to a seven. It's not a good look. Robert McFarlane, I want to switch gears because uh, I mentioned Barry Lopez and his book Horizon, and you mm. said that that's how you got into writing. So talk about what what prompted you to become a writer? I mean, was it always there? Uh, my father sent me uh, this morning on, on WhatsApp, he sent me a, a photograph of a poem I wrote when I was 13. It was a terrible poem, but I was writing poems when I was 13. So I, I've always been interested in languages, relationship with nature and the future, I guess. But yeah, in 97, I was in the Pacific Northwest and I picked a copy of Barry Lopez's Arctic Dreams off a bookstore shelf in, in Vancouver Island. I did not need a book at that time. I had never heard of Barry Lopez. In fact, I was about to walk a 70-mile solo trail. I did not need a heavy book in my pack, but I took that one. I read it. It amazed me. It blew open nonfiction for me. This was a nonfiction work about the Arctic that was written with cultural history, anthropology, ethnography, poetry. It's like, wow, you can do anything in nonfiction. And so I began writing, and I, I wrote a book about what was my passion then, uh, incomprehensible passion of, of, of climbing, shared by so many people. And here I am, nearly 20 years later, still puzzling away at landscape and people and place. Well, when you began writing, did you have any idea it would be published? How did that work? I mean, did you just send it out? Or? I Yeah, pretty much. I wrote, I, I wrote a chapter of this book, Mountains of the Mind, and I, I sent it out uh, to a few agents, and um, a couple of them passed. Um, I like to think they slightly regret that decision now. And, and one of them rang me up and on a payphone. I, I took the call on a payphone because I had been climbing mountains in Scotland, and, and here I am now. Um, and I'm still with that same agent, and um, I, this is actually nearly nine books and three films, and yeah, I just, I will never stop writing about landscape because it's unfathomably interesting. What is The Lost Words? Oh, this is a book I made with the artist Jackie Morris. 2007, a very widely used junior dictionary in Britain dropped a bunch of nearby nature words from its um, dictionary acorn, uh, heron, kingfisher, otter, all the way through to wren. And in their place came attachment, block graph, broadband, voicemail. Well, you can see what happened there. This was a moment where tech took over nature. And, and they, they, they took these words out because they weren't being used enough by kids. So it wasn't the dictionary's fault, it was sort of culture's fault. And we made this book, The Lost Words, took 20 of those words, acorn through to wren, and I wrote a spell for each of them, and Jackie painted them back into being, and it was, Jackie called it a beautiful protest. Um, that's what we wanted to make, and it, it, it's just gone wild, absolutely wild in Britain and in North America. I think there's a copy in almost every primary school in the whole of Britain now. Really? And it's it's uh, film, it's theatre, it's dance, it's a board game, it's... Uh, people are worried, oddly. I think that's what, that's what powers it, is worry about the relationship between nature and childhood. I was looking through your bio, and Mountain was a full-length movie? That was a full-length movie, yeah. And it just was you kind of showing people mountains and <laughs> I haven't seen it. But. No, it's, um, it premiered at the Sydney Opera House. Uh, Willem Dafoe did the voice for it. It was sort of an adaptation of Mountains of the Mind. 
the director, Jen Piedem, an incredible Australian director specialised in mountains, came to me. And we had a live performance by the Australian Chamber Orchestra. And then it, it's on Netflix. It's on. Um, uh, it's available online. It's just just gone onto Netflix, and it's been a. It's become the highest grossing Australian documentary feature film ever. It was wild. Yeah, music image text collaboration. I noticed something. Um, it's in Wikipedia, but not IMDb. Something called Upstream. Ah, yeah. Good sharp eyes. We just finished that film. Three years following a river, not downstream, which is the way most most rivers flow, as it were, most imaginations of rivers flow, but upstream in the Cairngorm Mountains, where our conversation began, actually, northeast Scotland, filmed in black and white entirely, and um, the, the voiceover is Gaelic and English, and that's that's the BBC of... Um, uh, we just made it as a passion project, and the BBC have just, just bought that, so they're going to screen it. Is it full length? Half an hour. Oh, half an yeah, hour. Yeah. yeah, I noticed a couple of these are about a half hour or so. Yeah, I worked with the BBC a lot uh, over previous years adapting The Wild Places or, or, or a couple of other things um, with them for hour or 40-minute, half-an-hour programs. How do you feel about doing films as opposed to writing? I hate being in front of the camera. I'm not very good at it. I love radio. Uh, you know, <laughs> good face for radio and all that. But um, uh, I really don't like being in front of the camera. But I love writing for image. And I love collaborating with musicians and, and, and with filmmakers. So, yeah, I think I'm going to make more, more film, but always stay behind the lens. This is a question I've asked some people, usually novelists, huh. but uh, for someone like you or Barry Lopez or Richard Powers, mm-hmm. uh, this comes up. A simple question, writing a book is not just about somebody going to read it. It's about the person who's writing it. How does a book like Underland change Robert McFarlane? I think it's a great question, and it, it's one I hadn't reflected on until recently. Two, two ways, I think. One is that I understood that time, deep time, flows forwards as well as backwards, by which I mean that the planet's age is, is, is its history, but also its future. And I think that the years I've been writing that, I've had a strong sense of us as needing to look to the further future to be good ancestors. And the second, my God, is just to make me love the living and love light and love color and all those things that, that you don't tend to get underground. There's, uh, there's a point fairly early on, I'm not sure which, which cave you're coming out of, <laughs> where you kind of just stop as soon as you get out because suddenly you're overwhelmed by color. Yeah. It's like, I guess, the analogy for us would be watching a movie like Wizard of Oz and that moment where it goes from black and white to yeah. color. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is like that. We'd been, we had not been far underground that day, but we had gone through so, this, this ruckle and then we found ourselves in a bedding plane. I just felt compressed by deep time, by the underworld in a really visceral way. Then we surfaced and we surfaced on this bright day into this overgrown sinkhole and the light was coming through ferns and leaves and green. I just, my whole being turned green, like a dye had been poured into the top of my head and just flooded my body. It was amazing. I felt ferns growing in me. It was just, it was so powerful. And it lasted only, you know, four or five seconds. But it's enough. It was enough. I'll never forget it. When you're coming down off a mountain, Hmm. what is the reaction then? I often say that when you come back from a big mountain it is like you've been to another planet and you come bearing 
experiences that are really beyond speech. You feel like stopping people in the street and saying, you'll never guess where I've been. You'll never believe what I saw up there. I saw waterfalls blowing up because the wind was so strong that they became water rises. I've seen I've seen ice swirling and blue as blue could be. I've I've been elsewhere and I want to grab them and then I, I now know that you can't carry this stuff in language. But you're trying. I mean, <laughs> yes, well that's true. <laughs> I spent I spent sixteen years trying my best at well, two thousand pages. It's kind of funny because I was thinking, you know, there are a couple of pictures in here, but not much, and I kept a part of me wanted the pictures, but then I realized that when I've taken pictures of things that astound me, I was in uh, Laos hmm. uh, in February. So I was visiting a friend in Thailand, took a side trip. And we went to a waterfall that had so many levels. And you just walk up and finally the last one is a big pool and water is flowing in. And I took some photos from my phone and I realized you can't capture it. You cannot. And I think to, to have more photographs here would turn it into a kind of, you know, Instagram feed or something. I, this is where language does come in. Language can open into d dimensions of time. The reader, the reader's imagination lives. I, I wanted to write a book that was like, um, it was a bit like a cave painting. You kind of lift the light and the light moves and then you become a participant in the making of that. So that's why there are no maps. Uh, some readers like to follow it on Google Maps. Um, mm -hmm. There's, uh, and there and there are very few images, but language language paints images when it's done well. I'm not saying mine is, but you know that's <laughs> what that's what you hope to do. Well, what what it does is it creates images in your mind, yeah. and just like with a movie, it can never be quite what you imagine yeah. for a book. Yeah, that's right. But especially in darkness, where you can't see very much, so language has to echo. Robert McFarlane. Now you've finished this book. <laughs> Have you started thinking about another one? Yeah, I've concentrated on, on lying down and sleeping quite a lot since finishing this one. But no, I, I'm going up into the skies. I don't mean in a Wright Brothers way or, or an astronaut way. I, I want to write a... I'm making a book with Jackie Morris, who I made The Lost Words, about birds, uh, endangered birds, birds that are vanishing from our skies and our lives and our, and our stories and our languages. So it's called The Book of Birds, uh, A Field Guide to Wonder and Loss. So that will, you know, I'm going to stretch my ring, my wings. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got the next thing, of course, it's outer space. But uh, uh, You're not the first to have suggested that, but I feel that is beyond my skill set. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>